This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. The spotlight is on Columbine High School this weekend. Saturday marks the 20th anniversary of the shooting that killed 12 students and a teacher. What's less known is that same year, 3,000 other children and teenagers died by gun violence in the United States. We're joined now by two Colorado parents who've lost their children to guns. Charletta Evans' son, Kason, was shot in 1995. David Work's daughters, Stephanie and Rachel, were killed in 2007. Charletta and David join me to talk about the national attention that some shootings get and the silence that surrounds others. Charletta, David, welcome. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you. You're both involved in a Colorado group that, among other things, supports families of children who have been killed. And you became involved through losses of your own. Could you briefly share your stories? Yes, um, I would like to share my story. I uh, lost my son, Kason Xavier Evans, December 21st, 1995, to a drive-by shooting uh, by the hands of three teenagers that had access to guns. In the process of me losing my son, uh, just taken back that children had access to guns and how did this happen? And my life becoming a whirlwind, seeing that something had to be done. There had to be some form of action taken. And a lot of time went by uh, really taking a look at my uh, my healing process and having a surviving son and knowing that I had to do something and I did not suffer this tragic loss uh, for naught. And in that process of uh, starting a uh, organization that would reach out to other parents and that have suffered loss such as I have and to empower them and to give them a voice and to more or less duplicate myself as far as walking in the power and the spirit of forgiveness and making a change in the community and looking back in the inner city and uh, what is the cause of all of the things that are happening in the lives of our youth? Why would they resort to guns? Why would they resort to gang violence? Mm. And David, tell me your story. We were living here in Denver in 2000. Uh, seven, uh, four daughters, my wife and I, and uh, every Sunday we'd go down to the north side of Colorado Springs to the New Life Church. On December 9th, 2007, I woke up in the morning and and seen some news reports about something that had happened at uh, the Youth with a Mission base at Arvada out in the north uh, west part of our city and couldn't quite figure out what was going on with that. So we drove to church and uh, came out after second service at about a little after one o'clock getting in our minivan and heard a crack and the gunfire started. I looked up. I was the only one that ever saw him shooting at us. Um, two of our daughters died. I was hit twice, was in the hospital for nine days. Uh, so we still have two daughters. And uh, then about a month later, we met the parents of, of uh, our shooter uh, who live here in Denver. And we've been friends ever since. Wow. That's powerful. So our story is, is very different than Charlotte's. Uh, I'm, I'm white. Charlotte is black. 
ours was all over the news. Most people remember it because he was confronted with an, one of our armed security guards at the church. And uh, he died in the hallway after killing himself, after being confronted. Uh, just terrible all the way around. But we had a lot more publicity. Uh, that's one of the things that happens. I mean, we did, certainly don't have the publicity that Columbine or the theater or whatever. Because it's, it's kind of a different story too. Um, but still, you know, guns are colorblind. Mm. For those of us at the, on the wrong end of that, the pain is the same whether, you know, you're at our situation, the theater. We have friends at the theater. We had friends at Columbine even before our situation. Um, but it's different in the in the public perception. And I get that. But the pain that, that those of us that survive have is all the same, whether it's Charlotta on the street or us in a parking lot of a large essentially white church. Absolutely. And you said there was pretty significant media coverage after the shooting that impacted your family. Charlotte, tell me about the media coverage after Kason's death. There was, it was high profile case because my uh, son was three years old. And so that was the only thing that put it, um, that took it as far as it did. Um, if he was 15 and a gang member, it there's no way it would have gotten the coverage that it did. There was a lot of um, community efforts on finding, trying to find out who actually killed the baby. And that was where the, the media coverage came from. So it did. There was a lot of it was high profile, but that was only due to the fact that my son was three, that he was innocent and that, you know, that there was no other things connected. We knew no one in the area we had no connection with the shooters. It wasn't like a retaliation toward us. And it was, um, you know, wrong place, wrong time situation. And that's what brought the coverage. Um, other than that, um, looking at the who did it was not um, recognized because you're looking at the inner city gang lifestyle and becoming commonplace in a typical situation. So that was kind of uh, not really paid attention to. Uh, but uh, the fact that my son was three years old, mm. there was recognition. Mm. And how would either of you have liked coverage to have been different in your situations? Wow, I hadn't thought about that. Um, well, because ours was post-Columbine, and we obviously knew about Columbine. I mean, our kids actually at one point had created cards and we took them around to the various hospitals in the immediate aftermath and met one of the families, actually. Uh, so we knew how that was going to play out. Um, by and large, ours was pretty good. Um, I have to say that the 911 call was put out there, uh, at least part of it, uh, which I didn't like uh, because it happened to be from my oldest daughter, my now oldest daughter. And it was right there in the middle of it. And uh, and I didn't like it, not because of what was on it. I just don't think that's good for people. I know people are curious, but there's some things you really don't need to be curious about. And that kind of trauma is not good for anybody. Mm. And Charlotta? What I, what I retrospect, looking back, and, and, and how the effects took place, I think that it should have been more 
uh, coverage about the gang lifestyle and how it's infiltrating into other neighborhoods and that that they could have got a handle on it. I really had no clue about the gang lifestyle and how it had spread so broadly and how dangerous it really was. And so entering into an area in Denver not knowing, I wish there could have been more um, addressing this this lifestyle that, that could affect the innocent and, and just getting a grip on that. And it it's kind of was just left to itself to to uh, it's in this isolated area as if it's going to, as if it's going to stay there. And it, it became common and, and, and devaluing of life like they're in this area. They're shooting and killing one another. And uh, but there's others that have suffered from this this lifestyle of this gang activity. And uh, that's what I see could have changed that more more uh, acknowledgement of this destruction, because now look at it. It's it's ventured out and that gang lifestyle has gone into areas, uh, you know, into Centennial and right now working with families that, you know, white families that's been interrupted. Their lives have been changed and drastically just traumatic incidents due to gang lifestyle. So there could have been more inclusion of context. Yes. And obviously our nation is having a lot of conversations about gun violence in the media and legislatures in our homes. What pieces of the conversation are missing? And I know that you've talked a little bit about the context in your own son's shooting, but I am thinking in particular, what's missing in conversations about shootings in communities of color? What's missing is, um, as I said before, the devalue of life. Um, the attention is not there. And and the fact that, you know, as 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 we know, the movement Black Lives Matter that was generated due to um, the police, uh, the police shooting innocent black men um, and uh, or not. But the the taking a look at that lives matter and that we're not less than anyone else, uh, the value of life. There's been carelessness. There's been uh, uh, misuse of, of, uh, of, uh, of laws and things of that nature, but there's a reason for these things. Hmm. And you're not saying that the media shouldn't address problems of mass shootings in schools. It's just that you want more attention paid to other killings that you think go underreported. Exactly. I would agree with that. I mean, it's, it's important to cover all. It's all important. You know, far be it from me or anyone, I think, to denigrate Columbine. And we learned a lot from that. It helped in a weird way. It helped us get through some of what we had to get through. There's lots of lessons to be learned, but it's not just in South suburban Denver or North suburban Colorado Springs. It's kind of all over now. And uh, like I said earlier, it doesn't matter where you are. If you're on the wrong side of a gun, you're still going to be in having have some pain going on. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And what are you both doing to change conversation about gun violence? The I believe that um, taking a look at how uh, MAD, uh, Mothers Against Drunk Driving, how they have uh, established many, many years, since 94, I believe, and the impact that they have made uh, coming together, building coalitions, and fighting for the right reasons, 
And so that's what I see regarding pulling together mothers and fathers that have lost children to violence, that they're the voice to make the change. They're the voice to go into the schools. They're the voice that to fight the the legislative arguments that need to happen and that we need to definitely make make it more on purpose and not have flippant laws concerning gun uh, control and things of that nature. Mm -hmm. And we've only got about 30 more seconds left. But David, what do you wish that people knew about how shooting threats like the one this week or public anniversaries like Columbine, how they still affect families who've experienced similar violence? Well, it never goes away. I think about my daughters all the time. I know the Columbine folks do as well. The people at the theater, same thing. It never goes away. And uh, how you deal with it, everybody does it different. Charletta, David, thank you both for being here. That's Charletta Evans and David Works speaking about their experiences losing children to gun violence and their work with 5280 Survivors, which supports families who've experienced that loss. Imagine you're camping. It's time for s'mores. So you order firewood through an automated voice command system, and a drone delivers a bundle right to your campsite. You don't own any camping gear? Rent a site that comes fully equipped. Campgrounds of America is the largest system of privately owned campgrounds in the U.S. It envisions building what they call Campground of the Future by 2030. Toby O'Rourke is the organization's CEO. Hi, Toby. Hello. KOA owns campgrounds across the country, and there are 27 in Colorado. What does the campground of the future look like here? All sorts of things. You know, right now there's lots of places and ways to camp, right? And our our models take that definitely into account. There's a power pad site that you drive right onto and it powers your RV. We also did some elevated RV sites where you park below, but you have a deck above that gets you off the ground. You know, there's also tenting, and right now there's lots of ways to tent. There's tent pods that exist that allow you to tent up in the trees. We think stuff like that will continue to be popular. But we also definitely played around with cabins and glamping, which is becoming more and more popular. We've got tree houses in our model. We've got glamping tents. We've got tents, for example, that are on a a track, and you could upload everything onto your, your platform, and then the rails will take you deep into the woods so you have a little bit more of a private experience. We also played with how do we take our different sites and connect you more to nature. So you'll see our cabins have opaque walls, for example, that allow you to see outside and experience nature, and then maybe those darken at night when you want more privacy. So the walls could be translucent in some way. Right, yeah. So more of that outside-in concept. We played with that on cabins. We also played with that on some of the main check-in registration buildings. Just any way we can blur that line between indoors and outdoors, we think provides a better connection to nature. And I'm intrigued by the use of technology in this campground of the future. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Sure. I think technology is continuing to advance right across everything we do. So we integrated a lot of different things into our parks, you know, everything from almost Roomba style lawnmowers, which are starting to be, you know, be sold in stores now, to kiosks at every site that allow you to connect to the camp host to maybe order materials or order more firewood or extend your stay. 
We did play around with um, some delivery bots or delivery drones to bring that firewood and food right to you. I think the way technology becomes key to the campground experience, it's not to overtake the beauty of camping, but it's to provide some sort of utility or make something more convenient to somebody. So for example, we concepted out an idea that someone could drive into a campground and based off their RV they're in or their device that they're wearing, it automatically registers them as they pass, you know, it's geofenced, for example. They come into the campground, they don't have to stop and register and check in and find out where their site is. It automatically checks them in and then there's a lighted pathway to their site or there's some sort of bot or person even that would automatically then direct them to their site. So any way it can provide convenience and utility, I think would be a natural way to integrate technology into the campground of the future. So with robots and electronic kiosks, how do you respond to people who look at those plans and say, that is not real camping? What about the idea yeah. that camping is this the place where you unplug from technology? Yeah, no, I get we get that now. So like I said, there's lots of places to camp, right? So there's definitely backwoods camping. There's put on your backpack and hike into a mountain lake and put up a tent, which is beautiful. There is also what we call front country camping, which is like private campgrounds like KOA, which have recreation and have activities. They've got, you know, like swimming pools. They have a a store where people can go get what they need. And a lot of people don't think that's camping. We have Wi-Fi on our parks now. We do know technology is very important to people. They like to keep connected while they camp, at least people that camp at private campgrounds. So I think if... I definitely think that argument happens now. I think it will continue to happen. There's always going to be different ways people camp, but that's, I think, the beauty of camping is you can still have that disconnected experience if you want it. There's lots of places to do that. And maybe the private campground experience looks a little different because that's what you want. So there's a lot of different ways to get outside. Oh, absolutely. I understand that these plans also include virtual reality. Can you tell me more about that? Well, for one, right now, all of our models are designed in VR right now. So we built out five different landscapes, forest, coastal, desert, urban, and mountain. But we also integrated VR into the future experience, concepting how, for example, maybe people book their their campsites. Maybe they can look at the campground in advance in VR and really understand where their site's going to be in the campground, what that experience is, you know, what are they next to, how far are they from the lake, for example, and then book their site right within VR. And we also used VR as a way of people to experience activities. You know, um, private campgrounds have a lot of activities or base camps to the local area. So maybe someone could come into the registration building, put on VR, and experience something before they book it, whether that's kayaking or, you know, a mountain bike trip, what have you, they can experience it in VR before they book that experience. How are your plans taking environmental impacts into consideration? Well, right. So I think environmentalism is going to be important. I think campgrounds and any business needs to continue to think about how we reduce our carbon footprint. We're more sustainable. We focus more on conservation going forward. So the campground of the future will, we believe, will incorporate more solar features, for example, Um, Our models build in shade structures that allow shade underneath for the camper, but also provide solar power for the campground or to put back to the grid. We also explored things like grass reinforcement, which allows you to maybe certain sites have lower impact to the grass and allows people to actually maybe park right onto that grass. That could be a replacement for maybe pouring a slab of concrete which is what happens now. We also think, you know, recycling will continue to be very important. There could be rainwater harvesting happening. Um, 
water reuse, gray water recovery. And as you consider how these campgrounds are going to interact with the environment, is there an opportunity for the campsites to improve how people and animals occupy the spaces together? Yeah, I think that that's a really interesting idea, and and absolutely. For example, domesticated animals right now, pets are extremely popular on campgrounds. So we played a lot with pet sites that allow that pet to be off-leash right at the site with the owner, and obviously pet parks and pet, pet playgrounds are important. But in terms of wild animals, and particularly in areas that have a lot of those, I think things will continue to advance. You know, we've got campgrounds right outside, let's say, Glacier Park, for example, where it's in bear country, and there's already measures that are taken on those campgrounds to reduce the interaction between bears and people. And I think that stuff will continue to advance. We don't necessarily have a lot of ideas on that at the moment, but I think that that will continue to emerge. And I've got to wonder, do these upgrades mean that camping is going to become more expensive? Well, I certainly hope not. I mean, I think that that's one of the good things about camping. It's a very affordable way for family or friends to to get outside and take a vacation or a, a short weekend away. I think that things will just naturally increase like they do now based off the rate of inflation. I think the things that we've at least concepted art aren't too far out there that couldn't be in the realm of possibility by 2030. That would be very commonplace in any sort of vacation option. And so I think things will just naturally increase, but hopefully very modestly. Hmm. So is your hope that these changes overall are going to allow people to get closer to nature? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's, if we envision a world in 2030, people are going to be probably even more connected than they are now. And I think there's going to be this desire to connect to nature and to to connect to each other. People are going to crave that connection. And the campground is a perfect place to deliver upon that. You know, we want people up in the trees. We've got forest walks, for example. We want people camping on sides of mountains or experiencing the underwater even if they can. So I think that that's the whole goal of camping. And I don't think that will change as we go into the future. That is fascinating. Toby, thank you so much for having this conversation with me. Thanks for having us. I appreciate it. Toby O'Rourke, CEO of Campgrounds of America, giving us a peek at the future of camping. When we come back, the little-known story of how music is now connecting schools across the U.S. 20 years after Columbine. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Sam Brash, host of Purplish. It's a show about Colorado's democracy from member-supported CPR News. Big questions about state government, answers from CPR reporters, experts, and voters. I want to know what my fellow Coloradans think about things. I was a little surprised to hear him say he doesn't want to use kill committee. It's just a unanimous feeling around the table. Why can't this get fixed? Subscribe to Purplish wherever you get your podcasts. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. And I'm Andrea Dukakis. The other day, I heard a story about something healing and uplifting that came out of the Columbine Massacre. I learned about it from a colleague at Colorado Public Radio, Carla Walker. She hosts a classical music show. We wanted to share that story with you as a bonus episode on Since Columbine about how one shooting 20 years ago changed America. So, Carla, give me a little background on this. Well, Andrea, music has always helped people deal with tragedy, and that was no exception at Columbine either. The very next day after the shooting, plans began developing to commission a piece of music for the high school band and for the entire Columbine community. Brent Biscop worked with the school band at the time. 
everybody wanted to do something. And the music community reacted the same way. In this case, Andrea, the musical community that Brent Biscop is talking about was the CU Boulder Band just up the road. Some of the band students, along with their professor, came up with the idea for a commission, which is a pretty rare thing in the world of high school bands. And why is it rare? Because it is so expensive, especially for a high school band budget. But in this case... Two CU Boulder students decided to take the lead to raise the money, and they sent out letters to chapters of a national honor band fraternity called Kappa Kappa Psi. And within two weeks, they had all the money that they needed raised. In fact, they had to send checks back. They had raised more than they needed. I've covered Columbine since the tragedy happened and talked to a lot of survivors over the years, and I've never heard about this. You know, unless you play in a band or you've been to a band concert where it was performed— That's not unusual. It's likely that you haven't heard about it, the piece or the story. In fact, I was recently talking with a top administrator at Columbine who had started working at the school after the shooting, and he didn't even know about it. The story was just never told. It happened outside the view of TV cameras, and it's remained largely unknown outside the band world. But inside the band world, the piece of music has spread, and it's been played now after mass shootings in other places. Alan McMurray was the director of bands at CU Boulder after Columbine and helped to lead the commission. Sadly, I mean, the piece continues to be relevant. Um, I, I think when, when Columbine happened, it was something that was unimaginable. And, and uh, we now live in a world where it seems like it's imaginable. So where does that story start? On the day of the shooting, in the band room, the wind ensemble class was working on a piece by composer Frank DeKelly, his setting of the old folk tune Shenandoah. Alan McMurray from CU Boulder had shared the background of this arrangement with the Columbine students. It was commissioned in response to the loss of life of a middle school student in Texas at Hill Middle School. So I I told the Columbine Band about this story and about uh, how this uh, loss of life um, had meaning through music and and, uh, how the students healed as a result of that. That was before the shooting, remember, an eerie coincidence. Then, not long after the rehearsal ended at Columbine that morning, the rampage began. Within 24 hours of the shooting, the CU students have put the wheels in motion for a commission. Brent Biscop was in the band at CU and worked with the Columbine students and says the choice of composers was obvious. Because the kids were working on Shenandoah at that time, uh, they wanted Frank. But the composer, Frank Tickelly, wasn't so sure. I was a little skeptical at first of even taking this on. I was just, I, you know, I just thought, who am I to even pretend to understand the kind of pain this community is going through. Part of that skepticism came from having to compose music about such a heart-wrenching event. But to Kelly says, the Columbine band students pointed the way. I thought, okay, what am I going to do? How am I going to express this? It was the kids' idea. They said, we don't want to relive the tragedy. And I thought, that's perfect for me because I didn't want to do that either. I didn't want to write a piece that relives this tragedy. Uh, Let me just write a piece that's about hope. And so composer Frank Tickelly begins the piece symbolically. 
the music starts way down in the bottom and just gradually lifts itself upward. It's almost like a 10-minute long lifting of the head skyward. Or just thinking of that all the time, just as sort of up, just slowly lifting the spirit and metaphorically lifting the head skyward. Why did you use horns there? There's something about the horns. The sound sort of envelops the room. It's sort of all around you. And I wanted this sound to literally kind of, literally embrace the room, embrace the players, embrace the audience, embrace everyone in the environment. It, they just seemed like, it seemed like the right instrument for what I was trying to do. One year and three days after that terrible day at Columbine, Frank DeKelly stepped on stage in the auditorium at CU Boulder to conduct his new piece called American Elegy. The media wasn't invited. It was strictly for the community. It was a joint concert between the CU Wind Ensemble and the Columbine High School Band. But then for this piece, the university players got up and left the stage, and what was left was just the high school kids. And suddenly, everything just was smaller. The size of the ensemble, the age of the kids younger, and you felt the, the vulnerability, I guess, of kids at that age. It was very powerful. And on that stage, Brent Biscop remembers a stark reminder of the lives affected by the shooting. The kids had made a decision that um, they wanted to leave two chairs open with roses in them. Um, One in in commemoration of a clarinet player and one for a tuba player. And and both of those two students were, were shot and they both survived. They were paralyzed. And so they were going to be in wheelchairs and so they were not... Um, they were not at the concert that evening. The kids wanted to make sure that they had some type of um, something there that, that displayed those students who were, who were part of the group as well. Composer Frank DeKelly wanted to incorporate the school's alma mater in the piece, but Columbine didn't have one. So DeKelly wrote one and then quoted from it in American Elegy. Part I quote is the part, we are Columbine, we all are Columbine. I quote that. And uh, those words, we are Columbine, first asserts the pride in the, of the school, and then we all are Columbine is how we all felt we were all Columbine at that time. Just after that, we are Columbine quote in the piece, a trumpeter plays offstage. It's sad. It's, I'm trying to write a piece about hope, but I'm also, not, I'm also acknowledging the grief. 
And this is a lone voice. I imagine just some voice of someone with not on the planet. Some maybe just something celestial. It could be religious. It could be the spirit of someone who who was a victim of the shooting tragedy. It could be anyone. But my point is it's a voice that's not here speaking in that offstage trumpet. Still get. It still, it still gets, gets you. Yeah. That's it. And then the oboe takes over the agreement. But the oboe is on stage. Yes, back on stage, representing the people again, with you know people with their feet on the ground again. And now from here it builds to the end. It's just a giant build to a huge climax. there was a dry eye in the auditorium that night? Uh, there were a lot of tears, uh, both on stage and off. Do you think that music is healing? Music always helps uh, because it takes us to this place that words alone can't touch. I mean, it's a place that is only inhabited by music, that music occupies it. It can help us understand things in ways that words cannot. American Elegy has continued to resonate in band rooms and concert halls. In early 2018, American Elegy was performed at Carnegie Hall, and Kelly remembers talking with the conductor for that performance. He said, I'm performing your elegy at Carnegie Hall in memory of the victims of the school shooting. And I said, which one? And he said the one that's going to happen between now and the Carnegie Hall concert. Two days after that Carnegie Hall concert, 17 students and staff members were killed at Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. Two of those 17 were band members. It turns out that Columbine and Parkland are not only connected through tragedy, but also through music. Stoneman Douglas High School asked Kelly to conduct another one of his works, also about loss, called Rest. The Stoneman Douglas Band performed rest at their fine arts concert organized in response to their tragedy. You know, and I'm honored that they would perform my music uh, for these kinds of events. And every time it seems like there's a, a shooting tragedy, I get an email from someone saying we're performing your elegy. And every time I'm honored, but every time it makes me sad that the situation makes it so. But the legacy of American Elegy is not all bittersweet. Brent Biscop was the offstage trumpeter the night of the premiere 19 years ago, and looking back, he thinks the piece achieved far more than the CU Boulder band students and their professor could have imagined when they organized the commission. I think it's one of the positives that came out of uh, such a terrible tragedy, of course, but there were some positives, and, and this is one of them. You know, a, a great piece of music and the sense of hope, which I think was really important, especially for those kids at the time. And as the piece has spread to thousands of band rooms in the years since, its legacy has been cemented. 
As one conductor wrote to me, American Elegy, he said, has given us all an opportunity to mourn, heal, and hope. This year, American Elegy came full circle when the Columbine Wind Ensemble performed the piece at its spring concert almost 20 years to the day after the shooting. Carla, so I'm hoping that the piece is still played today. It has taken flight over the last 20 years, but most of that has happened outside of the Columbine community. The music publisher told me recently it's been performed over 10,000 times since Columbine. Thanks so much for sharing the story with us. Andrea, thank you for the opportunity. It's, it's a delight to be able to tell it because it's so close to my heart. CPR's Andrea Dukakis and CPR classical host Carla Walker with American Elegy, a song written to honor and remember after the attack at Columbine High School 20 years ago. Tomorrow afternoon, a remembrance is scheduled at Clement Park near the high school. Former principal Frank DeAngelis is among the people who will speak. Even now, he says survivors are still hurting, and he's there for those who need him. I get phone calls from people 20 years later that are saying, we need help that, you know, we didn't feel some of the things we felt until 10 years out or something happened in our life. And I've had spouses call up and say, Mr. D, can you help my husband because my I'm losing my husband and my kids are losing their father and they're struggling and we try to reach out. CPR News will carry the Columbine Remembrance live. Our special coverage starts at 3 p.m. tomorrow. Colorado, along with nine other states and Washington, D.C., has legalized recreational marijuana, but it remains off-limits for members of the military. CPR's Dan Boyce reports from Colorado Springs on the tension that causes. On a recent tour of a rec center at Fort Carson Army Base, I see a tall, door-framed size poster headlined, The Costs of Marijuana. Through charts and graphics, it lists the Army's perspective on POTS' physical costs, social costs, usage trends. It emphasizes the fact that marijuana still continues to be the drug of choice in all of our services. That's Donna Klaus. She's the Prevention Services Branch Chief for the Army's Substance Abuse Program. She's based at Fort Sam Houston in San Antonio, Texas. Her group created the poster, which is posted at bases around the country, Another part of the poster shows a color-coded map of the U.S., split up by whether marijuana is legal recreationally or medically. We understand that there might be confusion, especially for individuals who live in the states where marijuana use is legal. For the military, there's no confusion. It is never okay for soldiers to use, even if they're stationed in a legal marijuana state. At a recent Colorado Springs City Council candidate debate. All right, candidates, do you support the sale of recreational marijuana in Colorado Springs? Would you back... The Springs, where Fort Carson is located, is the largest city in Colorado that has not legalized recreational marijuana stores. 
Many here complain the city is likely missing out on millions in revenue from highly taxed pot shops. But so far, local officials just aren't willing to risk angering the armed forces. Here's newly elected council member Wayne Williams. The reason I oppose that, I've been back in the Pentagon with our chamber, with other leaders in our community seeking new missions, seeking to protect our bases. There are five bases in the city. The military is absolutely a cornerstone of this local economy. Folks, the last thing we need to do is to make recreational marijuana yet another reason why the Defense Department opts to take missions, troops, personnel, and move it somewhere else. Somewhere else, like maybe the Army's Redstone Arsenal in Huntsville, Alabama. Which uh, I've been told likes to badmouth Colorado Springs from time to time because of cannabis. Andrew Heaton runs a medical marijuana business in Colorado Springs, which are legal. He disputes that having legal marijuana near a base means more soldiers will use the drug. He says in cities like Huntsville, you can still go off base and buy pot on the black market. In a community where it's legal, you've got it off the streets for the most part. Now, there are many who would debate that point, but aside from that, Heaton also points out military members undergo random drug tests. And if you come up positive, it doesn't matter where the pot came from. And none of them want to get what they call the BCD, the big chicken dinner, which is a bad conduct discharge. Not surprisingly, active duty soldiers are wary of talking about any marijuana use. But as legalization has spread, some veterans are getting increasingly vocal, saying it's time to re-examine the policy. Matthew Kale served in the Army in Afghanistan. Had two deployments and one medevac. His face was badly injured, traumatic brain injury, spinal injuries, PTSD. It left him taking a lot of medication. Yeah, it was a whole laundry list. It was um, opiates, benzodiazepines. 20 or so different things. But he moved to Colorado to try marijuana as an alternative and says it largely worked. He started reducing his pills medication by medication. And eventually I got it down to, to nothing. He now runs an organization focused in part on securing the right for veterans to use medical cannabis. And he thinks it's time to be realistic about active duty soldiers and drug use too. I know of people who are deployed and they often come across hash in Afghanistan. They use hash in order to medicate not just the horrors, the hardships of war, but to alleviate the boredom. <laughs> Donna Klaus with the Army's Substance Abuse Program says this is all beside the point. As long as marijuana remains illegal federally, the rule stands. Illegal drug use and abuse remains incompatible with both military and civilian services in the Army. Last year, the Department of Defense released a memo specifically reaffirming its prohibition on marijuana, medical or otherwise. In Colorado Springs, Dan Boyce, CPR News. Grand Junction's hope of becoming the new home to a federal agency got a boost recently in Washington. Last week, the Bureau of Land Management announced that it's asking for $60 million to study moving its headquarters out of the Beltway and into the West. From Grand Junction, CPR's Western Slope reporter Stina Sieg explains why the city of less than 60,000 thinks it has a good chance of becoming the BLM's destination. It might not sound like a strong competitor against the bigger, better-known cities also in the running, including Boise, Tucson, and Salt Lake. But while Grand Junction is far from pretty much everything, Republican U.S. Senator Cory Gardner says it's close to what matters, the land the BLM oversees. To open the front door to your office in Grand Junction, look out and say, that's why I'm making a difference. 
That's a pretty powerful message. A message Gardner thinks would ripple across Washington and help inform policies. He first started pushing for the move toward the end of Obama's last term. And Gardner has always made sure Grand Junction is part of that conversation. Robin Brown says when locals first heard the senator mention their city as the possible new home for the BLM. I think a lot of people thought that was just a crazy pipe dream. But it soon seemed like things were falling into place. Brown, the executive director of the Grand Junction Economic Partnership, says there were meetings between city and county leaders and the Department of the Interior. Washington officials even flew out for tours. Then at some point last summer, fall, um, it felt like a real possibility, like we were one of the top three choices. Grand Junction officials heard there'd be a decision by the spring. But then one of the big champions of the idea... Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke left his post, and a new acting Secretary of the Interior was appointed, David Bernhardt. Now, Brown still felt optimistic since Bernhardt's a native of nearby Rifle, Colorado. But it went quiet. That silence persisted until Senator Gardner spoke up at Bernhardt's recent confirmation hearing and asked for an update. And to my uh, great delight, It was announced that not only are they still moving forward with the idea, but they have actually put money into the budget to help fund a look at relocating BLM West. Mesa County Commissioner Rose Puglisi says the region has also been willing to spend money, making its case in Washington, D.C. We have really done a great job at marketing ourselves to BLM officials, to their employees. And Puglisi says they're ready to tackle perhaps the area's biggest handicap. It's small regional airport. So if we get a commitment from the BLM that they will move the headquarters here, then we will work to secure a direct flight um, out of Grand Junction Airport to D.C. And Grand Junction has something most of its rivals don't. Relatively affordable housing, with an average home price of around $240,000. Robin Brown says that gives her city an edge. Federal officials have told her that their biggest priority is affordability for the estimated 300 employees who could relocate. Her agency has even put together a relocation task force, just in case. We are here. We would love to have the BLM. We are ready and prepared to help them, you know, transition into the area if that becomes a reality. But even if it doesn't, Brown thinks this experience has been worth it for Grand Junction. It's been great advertising, she says. It may help it land another government agency or big company down the road. In Grand Junction, I'm Stina Sieg, CPR News. Finally today, we are very excited to bring you Monday's show, an experiment called the Climate Change Variety Hour. The experiment is to try to bring hope and, yes, even laughter to a topic that is usually doom and gloom. We'll hear your climate confessions. We'll meet with the Dr. Frankenstein of coral reefs. She's been able to bring them back from the dead. Plus, special appearances by a climate comedian, as well as a hip-hop band called Flowbots. They're on a mission to write new songs for today's social movements. We know that social movements in the past have part of their glue, part of what has allowed them to be supercharged and, and present, um, is to have songs in common, to celebrate singing not as something that performers do on stage, but something that everybody can do together, that we have as a culture, as a movement. We'll leave you with a taste of their rousing performance of Lies. Say it with me. Be but angry.
got gangrene, please don't let anybody try to change me. Me, just me in the middle of a sea full of faces, full of faces. Some laugh, some salivate. What's in your alleyway? Recycling bins or bullet cases? It's not equal, it's not fair. We're different people, but we're not scared. We ain't never scared to pave a new path, make a new street, build a new bridge. Say, can you see by the dawn's early light? Free slaves run a song's words work right now a new day's coming the few states done a while many you're handsome your soul is alive but they want it for ransom the bass drumming is the anthem we step to the heartbeats of our granddaughters and grandsons and rise together we rise. together we rise. together we rise. together we the Climate Change Variety Hour with Ryan Warner airs Monday on Colorado Matters. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Avery Lowe. This is CPR News. Together we rise, together we rise, together we rise.